have you ever heard the phrase stock tank? Stock tank, not to be confused with a pond. A, a pond is for picnics, okay? A stock tank is for bringing cattle or sheep to graze and feed on water. Um, it's also, I, I grew up on a ranch, and so um, one of the things about a stock tank in is not only is it for stock, like livestock, it's also stocked, if you're smart, it's stocked with fish. And so we had three stock tanks on our property growing up, and my two other brothers and I would go fishing a lot. And one of the great things about going fishing in a stock tank, and I've never known anything else like a lake or saltwater fishing, is that you've got them right where you want them. All right, there may be a half acre, maybe a quarter of an acre, little round stock tank. You've got a dam, you've got fish that you've put in. It's kind of like hunting, right? You, you've got the blind and you've got the corn and it's pretty easy. And so that's how I grew up. So the first time that I went to the lake and went fishing, I was really frustrated because it took a lot longer to catch a fish and that. But um, we used to go fishing and my parents uh, would encourage this and three brothers and I would help my brothers and... Um, it was a great experience, um, a great experience to learn a skill, great experience to learn a little bit of patience. These are the things that my parents told me. But what I figured out really quick about fishing is fishing is deception. Fishing is deception. That's what you're trying to do to the poor little fish in the stock tank. You're trying to deceive him with food or what looks like food on his menu every day. And so I remember as a kid, we had the beetle spin and the topwater lure. These are things that a fish might be seduced by, enticed by to take. And you know how it works. You throw the worm out there, the fake worm that you have a hook on, and you throw it out there, and you wait till it sinks to the bottom of the tank, and then you give it a little nudge to make it look like it's a real worm. And you hope the fish thinks it's a real worm, that your skill at luring them and tempting them into this works and they take the bait but what they get is a hook a metal hook and then they get to be part of the catfish fry that night that's how fishing works fishing is deception and in our lives the lure of sin is very much like that it's very much like that there's an internal desire and an external enemy who dangles the bait in front of us day after day and promises fulfillment but leaves us wanting and brings us brokenness and fracture, and even brings ultimate death. This morning we come to that fateful text when Adam and Eve and all of us, according to the scripture, plunge, are plunged into sin. And if you think about this text, maybe this morning you find yourself needing answers as to why in the world this world is the way it is. This text provides root causes for you. And if you find yourself struggling with taking the bait of sin again, and again, and again, this text helps you unpack and understand why that is. It also gives you hope. And it also, if you come this morning going, I want to wage war against my sin, this is a great text to remind you of who God is and the way in which he allows you to fight sin so you can understand it, so you can understand the fisherman and his lure that he puts in front of you every day. And last... I love this text because at the end of it, I wish I could just skip to the last section. And because I think there's something here that you're going to be amazed by in God's response. His response to Adam and Eve's sin. So turn with me to Genesis chapter 3, just a few pages into your Bible, and we will be in verses 1 through 13 this morning. And just by, as you're flipping there, um, up until this point in Genesis, right? Genesis is the book of 
beginnings. It's all good, right? We're, we're to a place where it's all good that God has created all things by the word of his power out of nothing. And in every day he said it was what? He said it was good. And he looked at the whole thing and he said it was very good. And he made Adam. He breathed air into his nostrils and he gave him dominion over the garden and over the earth. He made him a foreman and he had relationship with Adam. And then he he, he names the animals and he has dominion over the garden and he's supposed to care for it and protect it and take care of it. But there wasn't a suitable helper. And so he takes a rib and he makes Eve his partner. This beautiful picture of marriage, this partnership where two distinct people come together as one who are equal. There's a beautiful picture here. All is good in the hood of the garden, but the garden gets a visitor. Let's look at it. The garden gets a visitor. Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. God's word says this. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Verse 4, but the serpent said to the woman, you surely won't die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. In verse 6, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Verse 11, he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you not eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman that you gave me to be with, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. And then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. This fateful text, it plunges us into sin, Adam and Eve. I want to give you three action points really this morning that we can apply to our lives every single day. There's much to apply in this text. So the first thing is this. We've got to understand our enemy and his schemes. We've got to understand our enemy and his schemes. Do you notice how abrupt this is where the serpent comes into the garden? All, everything is good and then all of a sudden you see this serpent. This serpent who is empowered by someone. And you notice too, you, you don't know in the narrative text, but Eve's not surprised that this serpent was talking. I don't know what that means. It's kind of a side note. But who was this serpent? We're not told who the serpent was here, but we find out through Scripture we know exactly who this serpent is. The shining upright one. We know that the serpent from Romans chapter 16 and Revelation chapter 12, it's on your notes at the bottom, verse 9, and Revelation chapter 20, that this serpent of old was Satan. That he took on the form of the serpent and he used the serpent to speak to Eve. So this is an abrupt. And notice, he's speaking to Eve. Who did God give the command not to take the tree of the knowledge of good and evil back in chapter 2? Eve wasn't even created yet. And so this crafty, deceiving, 
Satan comes into the garden and he takes the person who maybe has secondhand information and he goes to her. And look at the text. It, it says that now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he goes to the woman and he creates a doubt. Listen, I want to talk about Satan just for a minute because you need to understand who he is and understand who he isn't. Because we live in this world that um, kind of looks at good and evil as two equal and opposite forces. But I think you need to understand who this serpent who was made is, who Satan is. So a couple of texts here. Ezekiel chapter 28. I want you to see this. Maybe write this down. Ezekiel 28, 12 through 17. We're kind of paraphrasing because I want to get to some of these points. Notice who Satan is and what he did. You were the signet of perfection, God speaking. Full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden. Here it is. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. Until unrighteousness was found in you. It was in him. This evil was in him. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst. And you sinned. So somewhere between the end of creation, 131, and here, Satan has fallen and sinned. Who is Satan? I cast you as a profane from the mountain of God. So he was with God. I destroyed you, O guardian cherub. What's a cherub? Cherub is an angel. He is the highest of the created beings, and that's important. See, God is not created. He's eternal. He creates Satan. He creates this angel once of light and now of darkness. He's the guardian cherub. He's an archangel. He's the highest of all angels. In the ranking of angels, he was the highest. But he's created. So God has him on his leash. Okay, even here, when he was created, he didn't get to tell God what to do, and he fell. So I cast you from the profane, from the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones and fire. Your heart was, and here's why, proud. You see that in Isaiah 14 as well. Because of your beauty. And you crafted in gold with your settings and your engravings on the day that you were created. See it again? He's a created being in the days of creation. It didn't take him long that they were prepared. You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. And you are on the holy mountain of God. There's repetition in the midst of the stones. You walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day that you were created three different times. So he, who is Satan? He's an angel. He's a fallen angel. He's created. He's not equal with God. He's evil personified. Do you notice that there's no second chance here? That Satan, this angel, doesn't get a second chance. You don't see it anywhere in Scripture. You see the opposite. You see that he's not equal or opposite force of God. He's on a leash. He's defeated. You know, we often talk about Satan, right, at the cross. We talk about how Satan is defeated at the cross spiritually, right? Because no longer are we a part of the, have to be a part of the kingdom of darkness, but we can be a part of the kingdom of light. So Christ and what he does on the cross allows us that freedom to know Christ and be redeemed. And we often also talk about Satan in terms of future, right? We talk about how in eternity he's thrown in the lake of fire and he's, and, and he's there and, and, and no more can he tempt. But let me tell you something. Satan is already defeated here. He's already defeated. God has cast him off the mountain of God. And so as you think about your sin struggles and the lure of sin in your life, you need to know that Satan is not equal with God. That he doesn't have power over you as a believer in Christ. He doesn't have to have power over you. Those chains are broken if you know Christ. And they are heavy and they are weighted 
But he has no power over you. That's who Satan is. Understand your enemy. So he's those things. But look at his schemes. Look at verse 2. Look at the schemes of Satan. Look how he first tempted Eve. He goes to the one with perhaps lesser knowledge or less understanding to the woman. Did God actually say? This doubt. He's creating doubt. Did God actually say you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? That's not what God said. You can have any of the fruit, jump from it, do whatever you want on any of them, but this one. So he's twisting what God says. He's creating doubt in her heart about what God said. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. So she's recalling what she understands. But God said, notice also, Satan doesn't use the personal name of God here. He distances himself from the person of God for Eve. He doesn't use Lord God, he uses God. He makes him impersonal. And then Eve picks it up, and God said, You shall not eat from the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it. I don't know if Adam said, Hey, don't go anywhere near it, don't touch it, don't do any of that, but that's not what God said. In the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch lest you die. She got that right. She understood that the, that the, that the uh, command in chapter 2 was that they would die. But the serpent said to the woman, You shall surely not die. This is a straight-up lie. Right to her face. You shall surely not die. God said you would die. She understood that she would die. Satan says, nope, you won't die. God's holding out on you. Look at the irony of these statements that Satan is making. These clear lies that he is trying to infiltrate in her heart as a lure. You shall surely not die. Do you know the irony of that? After they took, that's exactly what happened. They experienced spiritual death. That's what happened. For God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened. Oh, their eyes were opened. Surely their eyes were opened, this half-truth. And you will be like God. How is Adam and Eve, how are they made? Male and female, what? In the image of God. They are already like God in the way that God deemed them to be like Him. So these are lies. Do you see this? They're already in the likeness of God. But He's trying to promise more. God is holding out on you, Eve, knowing good and evil. And when Satan, I think, says knowing good and evil, it's this intellectual knowledge, this wisdom that he's saying that you would possess. You know what happens next, right? You know what, what it looks like. So look at his schemes. He's trying to create doubt. He's trying to say God's holding out on you. There's more fun to be had. There's more joy to be had that God can give you. He just wants to keep it for himself. That's the scheme of the enemy. It's an outright lie. Look at the progression in verse um, Verse 6. Verse 6 says, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, lust of the flesh, and that it was a delight to the eyes, lust of the eyes, and the tree was to be desired to make one wise. Remember, they've got all the garden, all the earth. They have all things except this. You know when you hone, on, hone in on that one thing that you don't have? Yesterday we were outside and we have these we moved into a new house, and we have all these big old crepe myrtles. We have like 10 of them in our yard. And um, there's some that you can get with kind of the nips, and then there's these massive ones. So I had to pull out my pole saw. And I set my pole saw down at an angle on one of the small crepe myrtles, and it was about this high. And some, Samuel was helping me, and I look over, and he's about a foot from that blade. And he's just looking at it, and he's saying, Dad, look at this. And I said... Don't touch it. 
back away from the blade. He was intrigued by it. And after I told him to back away from it, he was more intrigued. And he would just look at it. This is the way it is, right, with sin. This is what happens. You can't have that. I want that. This is what's going on. This is what's happening in the text. This is what Satan is luring them into in verse 6. Look at 1 John 2.16. This is what happens. What's interesting here too, 1 John 2.16, what's interesting too here is that he says that their eyes would be open, that they would know these things. You know, when you have the flu, a lot of us have had the flu lately, and you go to the doctor. The doctor does what? He tells you all about the flu intellectually, but you're the patient that is experiencing the flu. So Satan's saying, hey, you're just going to know about these things intellectually, but what's really going to happen and what's really happening is, no, you're going to experience evil. Now you're going to experience what I've experienced. You're going to experience it. Do you see the deception in that? This is what Satan does. 1 John 2, 16 tells us this. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, you see it here, and the desires of the eyes and the pride and possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. And then the next verse, you know what the next verse says in 1 John? Don't be deceived. Because the Father of lights gives you all good gifts and all good things. Well, you see this with Jesus too. Remember Jesus' temptation? Remember what happened? Satan brings him up. Hey, turn the stone into bread. Lust of the flesh. Remember the next thing that he does? See all the kingdoms? See them? See all the kingdoms? They can be yours. Lust of the eyes. Hey, throw yourself off, pride of life. This is the scheme of the evil one in Jesus' life, in Adam and Eve's life, in your life, in my life. These are the schemes of the evil one that he's trying to get you to be tempted. You know, um, when I go, when I think about Ephesians, you know, when I think about Ephesians 6 and the armor of God, uh, the beginning of that passage, before it gets into all the defensive and offensive weapons, you know, at the beginning of that passage, it starts off and, and, and it says that we should stand firm against the, the evil one's schemes, that we need to stand firm against those things, and it gives us these defensive weapons. You know, I think of the armor of God as a, as a covering. Think about this. Uh, if it's raining really bad outside, what do you do? And you have to go out in it from your house to your car, from here to the parking lot. You have an umbrella. I'm a golfer, so I have a really good umbrella really big umbrella, I'm not getting wet, all right? So if, if you have the little umbrella, find somebody who plays golf because I promise you they have a really good umbrella. But think about that umbrella and what it does for you, okay? What, it could be raining cats and dogs, but that umbrella is creating a covering for you. If you wanted to, you could stand outside. You might look a little strange, but you could stand outside all day in the rain under the umbrella because it's covering you and not get touched. Listen, if you want to understand what our calling is, listen, God has given us a covering. He's covered us by the blood of His Son. And what happens is, is, is that we're under that covering, and what, so, so what Satan has, he can't get us under that covering. He can't get you under that covering. So what does he have to do? He has to lure you out of the covering of God to get you. And that's what happens. When we're lured out from that covering, then Satan can go to work in your life and in my life. And this is what happens. Let me ask you, what unique bait does he use in your life, Satan, 
What unique bait does he use to lure you out from that umbrella, from that covering that God has provided from you? You may know that bait well because you keep going back to it and back to it and back to it, and it never delivers what it promises, which leads us to really our next point. We need to know the fisherman and his lure, but we need to remember something. We need to remember something. Your second point, your second idea this morning is remember sin never delivers what it promises. Sin never ever delivers what it promises. This is what we see in verse 6. He had all the fruit in the world. They had everything good. They had each other. They had more wisdom and understanding than any other creature that was made. But that lure made them hone in on what they didn't have. And it made them go outside of that covering to get it. There's three things I think that are important about this point. Sin never delivers on what it promises. Listen, sin is ultimately sin and what it is, it's rebellion. It's rebellion, it's a rejection, right, that we do. That's a rejection of God's good, wise rule in our lives. But sin brings something, doesn't it? Look at what it brings to Adam and Eve. It brings them fear and shame, and it also does something else. It distorts. It distorts the relationship with God, and it distorts the relationship with one another. So sin is rebellion. Sin brings fear and shame and blame. Let me add that. And then it distorts. It distorts relationship between them and God, and it distorts relationship between one another. Just verses before, the man comes and says, this is my wife. I'm thankful for her. This is what happens in this text. Sin is rebellion. Look at it when you come to verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked. Did it deliver? Did sin deliver for them what they thought? That they would have all this wisdom and goodness? No, they knew they were naked. This is shame. This is shame that comes immediately. Their minds are perverted just like that. And they sewed fig leaves together and made for themselves loincloths. They covered themselves up on their own. We'll come back to that. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. This was a normal thing because this is where God dwelled. God's dwelling place was with man. And so this would have been in a normal time, in a normal day before that, that would have been pretty normal. They would have enjoyed the sound of God coming close and God coming near. But what do they do here? They're afraid, right? They hear him walking, coming close, coming toward them. And what do they do? They hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. That's a first. This is the result of their eyes being open. This is the result of them being deceived and giving in to sin. And then it says, but the Lord God called to the man, notice the man, the one he had given the command, the one he had made responsible for the garden to let anything in or out. Where's he been? I hadn't seen him. And he called to the man and said, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid. Do you see it? So there's shame. Verse 10, there's fear because I was naked. I hid myself. Who told you? And he goes through the questions and then look. Look at the other thing that happens. He asked them questions, redemptive questions. You, this is, and he asked them why they did what they did. The woman said, he said to the man, the woman that you gave me to be with, she gave me the fruit and I ate. That's about the most passive thing a man could do in that situation. He blames his wife. It's her fault. And by the way, you gave me her. It's your fault. 
And she says, hey, the serpent deceived me. That's truthful. But she knew better. And she ate. And that's how you get to sin. And so this is what sin does, right? This is what it does in your life. It's what it does in mine. It, it, it brings fear before God. It brings shame. And it distorts relationships. This is what we see. Have you ever heard the phrase, sin will take you farther than you want to go? It will leave you longer than you want to stay, and it will cost you far more than you want to pay. This is how sin works. It will take you farther. It will leave you longer, and it will cost you more. At the end of the day, on the end of that lure, there's only one thing, and it's a hook. It's a hook. So what lies are we counting on? What lies are you counting on? What are you believing in? Do you come back to the same lie over and over thinking something will change? Men, whether it's pornography, whether it's a strong drink, people, whether it's a person that you expect the world of, that only God can meet that need. Maybe it's your voice on social media, your reputation, control, all these things we make idols that we long so much for that they don't fulfill. The only thing that fulfills is Christ. He satisfies. This is, you see all this desire in this text? They see it. They desire it. They take it. Remember the Aaron Ivey wrote a worship song a number of years ago called Jesus is Better. Have you heard it? I think we've sang it a few times. Jesus is better. In all my sorrows and all my victories and all my comforts and all my riches, Jesus is better. And the, and the punchline to me is make my heart believe that. I need that every day. Make my heart remember and believe that Jesus is better than all my vain pursuits, all the things that I pursue and give in to the lure and the bait of sin. That Jesus is better than all of those things. So sin never delivers on what it promises. Jesus does. And I've given you a lot of bad news. It's, it's pretty quiet in here. I've given you a lot of bad news this morning, but I've got something that I've been really dying to share with you at the end of this text that's really amazing to me. Who pursued who? Whom? Who pursued whom here? Adam and Eve are hiding. God comes in the cool of the day. He's walking. He's not running at them with a stick. Chapter 2, what's supposed to happen here? They're supposed to die. And technically they have spiritually. He's not running at them. He's not yelling at them. What does he do? He comes and he seeks them out in their sin and in their shame. And surely there's going to be some consequences. And we're going to see those today and we're going to see those next week. But he seeks them out. He seeks them out. This is a grace. This is mercy. He doesn't have to do this. This is what you see in verses 8 and 9. Do you see it there? The beautiful words. Verse 9. But the Lord God called to the man. He's seeking them out in their sin and in their shame. Next chapter, we get to Cain and Abel. What happens? Cain's ready to take Abel out. And God comes to him, asks him questions. Sin is crouching at your door. He's there. He's seeking Cain out even in that. All the way through the Bible, what does God do? He seeks and saves the lost. This is why Jesus came, right? To seek and save the lost. Remember Zacchaeus? And the Pharisees are like, don't go. Why are you hanging out with the chief tax collector? And Jesus says, hey, sarcastically, sarcastically to the Pharisees, hey, I know you don't need a physician, but some people do. I'm here as a physician. I'm here as a physician. 
to seek and save the lost. This is what he says about the lost sheep in Luke 19. I'm here to seek and save the lost. This is what Jesus does for you and for me. I've never met somebody when they share their testimony and they get up and they say, hey, God's, it's really great you know, for God that I'm on the team now, that I believe. I've never heard a testimony like that. That's not your testimony. That's not my testimony. Our testimonies are, here's the pit that I was in. I went off as the son, the prodigal son. God brought me back, and he embraced me, and he loves me, and he cares for me. He seeks and saves you and me. That's your testimony. That's my testimony. Whatever your theology is, the testimony that you have, if you know Christ is, he sought me out. He seeks me. He loves me. He cares for me. He walks with me. That's our God. There's some good application here. There's a gospel application. You know, the Bible says that because Adam and Eve sinned, you are guilty and I'm guilty. And some of us go, that's not fair. In the same way that you look like your parents, you also look like your parents on the inside, all the way back to Adam and Eve. The Bible says um, that we've all inherited Adam and Eve's sin. We've all inherited and you don't have to look far. If you have little kids, you find that out really quick. We've all inherited this. But if that's not enough, original sin is not enough, we commit sins every day that remind us of this truth. That we are separate from God. That we've sinned against God. And it's interesting because God comes seeking to save. The question is, what's your response? What do you do when God comes seek, seeking to save? What has your response been? Look at Adam and Eve's initial response right here is what? To blame, to shift. They finally say, okay, I ate. It's to blame and to shift. You know what sometimes happens in our lives is that we look at our circumstances that God has put us in, i.e., this is the wife you gave me, Adam, right? And say, well, because of these things, it's your fault, God. Or the dispositions that you've given me, which we've talked about a little bit in the last few weeks. God, you've given me these feelings and these dispositions, so it's not on me. It's on you. Or maybe we play the victim card like Adam and Eve did here. We play the victim card and we say it's somebody else's fault. It's not my fault. It's a serpent's fault. It's Satan's fault. It's my wife's fault. It's your fault, God. So what do we do with that? You know, what's interesting about this text, too, when we think about what Christ has done for us, what did they do? The first thing they do is try to hide themselves, which they knew they were naked, and that made sense, that they were naked and they wanted to put loincloths on them to hide their nakedness. But think about that. Their solution for their sin was to do something, to work, to put something over themselves. What happens at the end of the chapter? You know what God does? Do, do their fig... Do the fig leaves work? They don't work. They can't cover their own sin. So what does God do? The first death that you see in the Bible is God killing an animal and taking the skin of an animal and covering Adam and Eve. That's a foretaste of a sacrificial system that's set up in the Old Testament that says you can't take care of your sins. There's nothing you can do that you can bring to God, that you can save yourself from your sins. And ultimately, where do we find that? Ultimately, we find that in the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world in Jesus. This is what he's done for you. He's covered your sin. He takes your sin away. Listen, if you're here this morning and you think, man, I'm just going to come to church more. I'm going to give more. I'm going to serve more. I'm going to be a better person. And that maybe that gets me somewhere on God's curve. And the Bible would say, from the beginning would say, 
Those are filthy rags. Those fig leaves that you're trying to cover your own sin with, they don't work. You need me to provide you a sacrifice for your sin. And we find that in Christ. And so I would ask you this morning, have you considered Christ? Because he takes away your sin. And he comes asking, will you repent? Will you believe? Will you turn and believe in me? That's the message. Your takeaway this morning is really this. God saves sinners. God saves sinners. That's you and me. That was Adam and Eve, and that's you and me. God saves sinners. We've been plunged into sin like Adam and Eve. We tend to take the lure that um, the, the evil one provides and take it for ourselves. But we have a Savior that not only saves us from our sins, but walks with us and provides us a Spirit of God who is willing to walk with us. We can be satisfied there. So when you think about the umbrella and you think about the covering that God gives you to protect you, remember that his covering satisfies. Remember that Jesus satisfies, that we don't need to take the lure of sin, but we can be satisfied in him. I don't often do this, um, but I found this, this week as I was reading, I found this prayer, and I want to close us in our time, and maybe this meets you where you're at. I want to I pray this prayer that a man wrote. Um, really about the destructive desires that we have when we give in to sin. And so um, I'm going to pray this prayer over us today, and then we'll take of communion. Jesus, here I am again, desiring a thing that were I to indulge in it would war against my own heart. In the hearts of those I love, O Christ, let my life be yours. Take my desires, let them be sub subsumed in still greater desire for you until there remains no room for the lesser cravings. In this moment, I might choose to indulge a fleeting hunger or I might choose to love you more. Faced with the temptation, I would rather choose you, Jesus, but I am weak, so be my strength. I am shadowed, be my light. I am selfish, unmake me now. And refashion my desires according to the better designs of your love. Given the choice of shame or glory, let me choose glory. Given the choice of this moment or eternity, let me choose in this moment what is eternal. Given the choice of this easy pleasure or the harder road of the cross, give me grace to choose to follow. Knowing that there is nowhere apart from your presence where I might find the peace I long for, no lasting satisfaction apart from your reclamation of my heart. Let me build then, Jesus, my King, a beautiful thing by long obedience, by the steady progression of small choices that laid end to end will become like the stones of a pleasing past stretched to eternity and unto your welcome arms. And unto the sound of your voice pronouncing the judgment, well done. In Jesus' name, amen.